It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. As we record this on a Friday afternoon, um, it's been just about 24 hours since the news broke across the world uh, that Michael Jackson, one of popular music's uh, greatest performers, uh, frankly, of all time, uh, passed away at the age of 50. Um, joining me to talk a little bit about Michael Jackson's life, his music, and his legacy are two uh, talented uh, music journalists, Oliver Wang uh, from the fantastic soul music blog Soul Sides, um, also a uh, uh, professor at uh, Cal State Long Beach, right, Oliver? That's right. Uh, and uh, Jay Smooth, host of uh, WBAI in New York's The Underground Railroad, uh, proprietor of uh, hiphopmusic.com and um, the host of the popular video podcast The Ill Doctrine. Uh, Jay, welcome to the show. Yes, sir. Good afternoon. It's great to have you, as always, both of you guys. Um, let's talk a, a little bit about um, about the moment that that you found out and, and how you felt about it. Oliver, um, uh, you're out here on the West Coast like me. Uh, what were the circumstances in which you, you found out that Michael had passed? Um, I was working in a, in a cafe down in Long Beach, and... Uh, was Wi-Fi'd in and was just keeping track of my email and and even though I was supposed to be writing was you know doing a little surfing on the side and and started to see the uh, the news stories trickle out. I mean the first thing was that he had had a heart attack. It wasn't clear how serious it was. Um, then by about I'd say four o'clock or so, uh, the, the the first sort of confirmations were coming out that he had he had passed. What, what about you, Jay, out there in New York City? Um, I was probably, like many people, uh, both watching cable news and obsessively Twittering, so I was observing the contrast between how old the new media were handling the story, which, you know, I'm sure will be an interesting conversation to revisit a little later on. But, uh, you know, as, as I was watching that go down, it's, you know, the waves of grief hit me much quicker than I expected to. I've seen a lot of people say that they were surprised by how deeply it impacted them, and I, I was definitely one of those that kind of felt it come over me much more than I thought it would. Uh, go ahead. If I could say, I mean, I think what's interesting for me is that I had, I don't know if the opposite reaction would be the right way to phrase it, but that in, this, in, in a way that, it wasn't that I was anticipating his death, but I felt like whatever grieving process I had for him as an artist had happened, you know, years ago. And I was reading something that my friend Hua Su wrote um, on his blog for the Atlantic um, Magazine, and he, I'm paraphrasing, but the gist of it being that, you know, at different points in time, Michael Jackson has died many times over in, in different incarnations of it. And I think there's a real, at least for me, that, that sort of explained why his death hasn't really hit me. Like, I, 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 I feel like this is a great opportunity to celebrate his music and his legacy in that respect. But compared to, let's say, when James Brown died, and especially when Isaac Hayes passed last year, this to me didn't, it, emotion just doesn't hit, didn't hit me in the same way. And I, I was trying to unpack that, and I think part of it is because you know, he's, he's been through, and he's put the public through so much, in a sense, um, that I, I feel like that grieving process has happened, you know, at, at, again, at various times over the last, uh, you know, 15, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, that, I would say that was my initial reaction as well. And, you know, in, in the epic battle between Michael Jackson and Prince, I was always a Prince man, <laughs> which is not to say I didn't love Michael as well, of course. But, you know, my initial reaction had a certain amount of detachment because, you know, ju just like you, I sort of felt like I had been grieving for him for a couple of decades now. Yeah. But, you know, soon after that, it started to dawn on me, you know, how many people still relate to Michael 
the way that I relate to Prince and imagining how I'd feel if Prince had passed oh, yeah. and how unthinkable that is, and then just imagining, you know, people in Australia and Japan who might have been asleep when the news broke and are going to wake up to it, and just imagining sort of these waves of grief, you know, flowing out around the world. Like after a few minutes, I started. This is kind of random, but I started thinking of the. Obi-Wan Kenobi line in Star Wars where, you know, the Death Star blows up the planet and he says, I, I, I just felt a disturbance in the force like millions of souls wow. crying out at once. Like I sort of... <laughs> Michael Jackson's Alderaan, all right then. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, w- one thing that struck me uh, as the news... Uh, uh, as the news came out, and certainly, especially as a kid, I was I was on the Michael Jackson side of that Michael Jackson-Prince divide. Um you know, I God, you know, I, I had a I had a Michael Jackson doll. I was just thinking about it when I was getting on the elevator last night to to go out, um, and, and I was thinking about how I had the uh, the bad outfit and the thriller outfit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, one of the things that struck me a, as the news was coming out was how how I reacted to the news on the basis of the way that Michael Jackson has been, for lack of a better word, mediated by the media. Right. Um, and I found myself, you know, doubting it and almost feeling angry as though, <laughs> as though a newspaper had killed him. Right. And, and, and how do you think, how do you think that, that relationship that the media has had with Michael Jackson and his life for so long affected you in, in that moment when you were finding out something really actual and definitive that, that he had actually died? I mean, for me, it, I definitely felt like that was foremost in my mind from pretty early on. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of obvious glib things you could say about his life without really knowing for sure what went on day to day in his personal life. But it certainly always seemed to me that, you know, his life was like the ultimate American tragedy in a lot of ways, I guess. You know, his, he as an artist and as a creative spirit just showed everything that can be beautiful about, you know, our spirit and soul and creativity, but he also, you know, from his earliest days as a kid, because of that tremendous gift that he had and the family he was born into, the whole world, including his family, related to him as, you know, as a commodity. Like, And the only kind of love he ever got was the love that consumers give to a product, which is not the kind of love that can really nourish a human being. So I feel like that that toxic relationship with media and celebrity fame that he sort of had to rely on to try and fill holes in himself that celebrity and fame can't fill. That, you know, it certainly looked to me like that was eating him alive for the last couple of decades. So his, you know, I think the weird, you know, ugly relationship he had with media and celebrity was definitely the first thing I thought of. What about for you, Oliver? Well, this doesn't, I don't think, directly answers the question of, of media, but I think especially what Jay's talking about, to me, the the... The binary that always that surrounds Michael Jackson is this idea of triumph and, and tragedy. Mm-hmm. That the fact, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about, the fact that he was able to survive as a child star, and not simply you know mature into adulthood to become the biggest pop force on the planet, is incredible. I mean, there's the, the, the there really are no other comparisons to that. I mean, Stevie Wonder sort of made that transition. Uh, Celine Dion has to a certain extent, but. Michael just sort of is, is so singular in that, and I think there's something about that which is, I mean, which is astonishing, which is remarkable that he was able to do it. But the price that that was paid in that is, I think, what is what Jay's talking about is, is sort of the tragedy of of really having lost, you know, at least what it would, it would, what appears to be a loss of sense of himself, a sense of his identity, uh, and then of course there's sort of like the grotesque implosion of his life 
of the last 10, 15 years, uh, which is sort of like a whole different kind of Michael to talk about. Right. I feel like there's sort of a paradox for anyone who's an artist nowadays that there's this, uh, you know, there's this really rewarding, genuine relationship that any artist makes with their audience through their art. But nowadays, in order to make that connection, you have to do it by creating this other relationship, you know, with the public as a mass media product. And I think, you know, we tend to sort of think of those two relationships as one and the same, but they're actually two separate things that just are bundled as a package. And I think like he's the most extreme case of an artist trying to reconcile those two ways of relating to the world and, you know, not being able to mix them together in a healthy way. Yeah, I mean, it also comes to you know, people like D'Angelo and Lauren Hill. And exactly. Their disappearance, you know, since the end of the decade, sort of are just more contemporary examples of that. I think Michael's being just, a, you know, extreme to the extreme, but um, certainly not the only person. I want to ask the two of you guys a little bit about your uh, personal relationship with um, uh, Michael Jackson as a cultural figure and and um, of his music and, and with his music. I mean, my... I'm 28, so my my first Michael Jackson memories were that my my first tape was bad and my first CD was dangerous, and and my sort of key Michael Jackson memories focus around that sort of dangerous era. I, you know things like um, you know the Remember the Time video and the black or white video premiering after The Simpsons, um, and it, it occurs to me that um, it occurs to me that you guys being five or ten years older than me. Um, had those same experiences, those same sort of uh, life points at, at times when Michael Jackson was absolutely at the peak of his power. What, what, let's start with you, Oliver. What are your early memories of, of what Michael Jackson meant to you as a, as a kid or, or, or as an adolescent and, and teenager? Well, I think my earliest memory of him was, was definitely with the Off the Wall album. And I distinctly have this memory of being at my cousin's house listening to um, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Um, and and dancing to it, though I don't. I mean, I think at that point I, I had no real. I, I definitely didn't know anything about his his history with the Jackson Five. It wasn't really until Thriller that that a lot of his kind of cultural status coalesced for me, to the extent that you know a seven or eight year old can recognize what cultural status means. I was about ten when Thriller hit, and that was around the same time that I was sort of just discovering radio and 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 top forty and pop music. So he, uh, you know, just define that my entry into the pop music world in essence um though at the same time i think i'm also of the generation that basically saw thriller as the pinnacle and you know feel felt like he kind of fell off after that which true or not that's just i think that's of that particular generation like you really can't follow thriller with anything in essence without it being somewhat of a letdown what about for you jay i mean you're you're a a world-class prince fan Yes, and I can't imagine that that didn't uh, color your impressions of Michael Jackson during his peak. But w- w- what are the first things that that you remember about Michael Jackson and, and what he meant to you? Well, I think I was aware of him, um, you know, during the off the wall era, and you know, to whatever degree I could be aware of, uh, you know, the older Motown songs as a young, young, young kid. I mean, those are definitely in the atmosphere and the environment I was in growing up with very musical parents. But the moment that really you know, the moment that's the dividing line for me is the Motown 25 performance on primetime TV, which I forget what year that was, but that that's a moment to me that I remember it almost being like the moment where we realized last year that we were going to have a black president. Like that culturally was a moment that everyone remembers exactly where they were if they were watching that and remembers 
you know, I remember going into grade school. I'm sure anyone else who was around remembers going to their job or their school and said, did you see, did that just happen? Did we just see that? Like, it, it was as if some otherworldly supernatural thing had just arrived on the earth. And I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's the biggest, the biggest difference, I think, generally, generationally. Like, if you were around at that time, you witnessed a type of stardom that I don't think will ever exist in the world again. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's ever going to be someone who's that type of cultural touchstone for everyone across the board the way that Michael Jackson was and has that, that deep an impact for everyone, and that, you know, which was important in a lot of ways, not the least of which because, as many people have pointed out, he was the one who uh, was basically the Jackie Robinson for MTV, mm-hmm. and he sort of integrated the pop music scene you know, in a way that you could even argue uh, helped pave the way for you know, the universal audience and connections that hip-hop made a little later on. It sounded like you were you were going to add something there, Oliver. Oh no, I mean I, I totally agree with what what Jay's saying here, and I think that um, this this question of of whether or not there could ever be a pop figure like um, like Michael Jackson again has has been something I've also been thinking a lot about, and I think as Jay's pointing out, it's just the the media landscape, the ways in which you know pop figures, in, in particular pop music figures, can come up and have sort of that crossover success and exposure. Um, I think just doesn't exist in, in the same way now for a variety of reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there are still other figures are, that are sort of in that same kind of arena, Madonna, Prince. But notably, these are all people from the 80s. I don't yep. really think, I, I was talking about this with my wife during lunch, I don't think past the 90s, and certainly not in the last 10 years, there's really been any artist that would remotely, I think, come close to having that kind of intergenerational, iconic status. Um, and you know, this, it's, I think it's questionable if we're ever going to see this—you know—the op- the, the kind of forces that would have to coalesce to make that happen. Right. Yeah. Both of you guys are are really huge music fans and music historians, um, and I wonder, as a musician, and to start with Oliver, uh, uh, what what was special about Michael Jackson? What what did he bring to the table as a as a musical talent? You know, that's a really good question because, and, and I, I have to confess, I really need to figure out more in terms of what was he doing versus what was the corporation doing, which was right. the Motown production team, you know, which was his songwriters. Uh, you know, I, I don't think as a musical, um, a musical, uh, you know, talent, I, I wouldn't necessarily put him in the same camp as, let's say, someone like Stevie Wonder, who as a songwriter and as a musician and as a composer, arranger, all these things, um, you know, just was able to sort of do it all. Michael had an incredible voice since he was a young, you know, since he was, you know, a child. Um, he had a sense of, of how to use his physicality as part of his sort of stardom, and that's exactly what I think um, Jay was talking about with, with the, um, the Motown 25 performance. Um, you know, it's, it's, a lot of it's going to come back to his voice, and, and, and without taking anything away from him, you know, I don't know if... if as a musical talent, though, he necessarily had the kind of creative, you know, vision or force of, let's say, a Marvin Gaye or a Smokey Robinson or, you know, a, a Stevie Wonder. Um, he, but as a performer, as a performer, he really knew how to put it down, and he knew, um, I think, how to work with sort of the right people, especially looking at the Quincy Jones connection uh, with Off the Wall and Thriller. Um, I'm going to let Jay, Jay jump in here before I sort of ramble way too far off, off, <laughs> off the path. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's basically the same way I see it. I feel like 
in a way, Michael Jackson kind of gets a raw deal because someone like Prince or Stevie Wonder, who is, you know, can be perceived as sort of an auteur who plays all the instruments and produces everything and writes everything, like someone whose strength is in the composition and production and as an instrumentalist, it's easy to see them as a mastermind and a genius and brilliant in a way that it's more difficult to quantify for Michael Jackson because his strength is as a performer. You know, the things that made him brilliant were things that we sort of see as intuitive, something you're born with, and something that, you know, doesn't take the same sort of genius, quote-unquote, that someone like uh, Prince or Stevie does. So, and I, so I, think, I mean, I think where Prince or Stevie might be considered the greatest musician of all time, I think Michael Jackson is the greatest performer of all time, and I think, you know, that deserves just no as question. much love in its own right. Yeah, no question. I, yeah, yeah, no question. What do you think it was about Michael Jackson as a performer that allowed him to... Um, to transcend, you know, the sort of basics of crossing over in the way that, you know, Aretha Franklin and Respect crossed over into uh, this sort of global pan-cultural phenomenon? I mean, if I, I'll, I'll take the first crack at it. I think a lot of it has to do with something that Jay mentioned earlier, which is how he integrated MTV. Right. And that, you know... Michael Jackson was one of the first major stars in a global transnational media age. Um, and that in and of itself, I think, says a lot about the fact that people in Australia and Japan are grieving in the same way that people in the States are, is that he was sort of one of the first global pop figures and, and really prefigures. I mean, I think of sort of the MJ initials, and he really prefigures someone like Michael Jordan coming along a generation later and doing the same thing. Different medium, but having that kind of star power was a lot of ways abetted by the ability for sort of this transnational global media to exist and, and get into every pocket around the globe. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, Michael was schooled, you know, in the Motown School of Artistry, which, you know, was very calculated by Barry Gordy and his crew to be something that, you know, could have sort of crossover appeal and be quote-unquote safe, you know, which is easy to tell of, you know, if you sort of compare Motown with Stax during the during that era. And so I think, you know, he kind of had that instinct instilled in him pretty early on. And, you know, obviously he just had a unique talent and gift and voice, you know, that was able to touch everyone and was always, you know, always strategizing and calculating on how to make a product that will reach people across the board. Now, you know, I think one of the most intriguing things about him to me is that he specifically wanted to be the king of pop and not not to keep pitting him against prince but you know it was always a telling distinction to me that prince always wanted to be the greatest musician in the world and because of that he would sacrifice universal appeal you know for making what he felt like was the best art like after after purple rain was such a smash hit he immediately retreated from that and sort of almost like intentionally tried to alienate a lot of people that were in the purple rain with the albums he did after that because he wanted to focus on you know creating the great, greatest and most lasting art he could create. But Michael Jackson was, you know, he was specifically obsessed with being the most being the most successful mass media product, to get back to what I was saying earlier. And I think, you know, in some ways that's kind of a window into the unhealthy relationship he had with his own fame, but also sort of informed the way he made this music that was able to have universal appeal and bring people together. There, there's this sort of inflection point in um, the history of American popular music that I was thinking about, I think, reading an article by one of your uh, colleagues at Soul Sides, Oliver, which is this point um, 
as as the disco backlash you know grows to 10 out of 10 and disco also sort of uh peters out creatively um which is right around the time when uh michael jackson and and quincy jones album off the wall came out um what do you think what do you think michael jackson had going for him at that specific point in history as as dance music and R&B was really at a at a low ebb um, that that was able to to cross that divide into the 1980s. Wow, that's a that's a that's a big question. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I, w- I don't know if I would say that 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 dance music and R&B was at a, at a low point. I mean, I think dis- I mean, for one thing, a lot of R&B artists distanced themselves from disco, you mm. know, by country miles. So it, there's some some um, fuzziness around to what extent R&B and, and disco were, were sort of can be conflated as, as sort of the same thing. Regardless, I think, you know, and again, my, my, my knowledge of Off the Wall really comes much more of my childhood experience with it than anything that I've really thought about in, in a critical way. But I think at the very least, I mean, him teaming up with Quincy Jones at sort of the height of both men's kind of, you know, artistic and creative abilities um, certainly doesn't hurt. I mean, you have the, uh, this teaming up between these two incredible forces um, and who were able to make it work within the studio and, 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 and get these albums out. But I think, uh, again, going back to some of the stuff that, that, that Jay said, I mean, Michael Jackson was also just incredibly well-trained all throughout the 70s. And um, I think it's the fact, I mean, that, that he was able to sort of maintain sort of a, a sense of artistic um, uh, integrity and forward direction with that, you know, he was going to hit with, with something that's, he was going to hit, you know, he, he had a sort of this fallow period in the mid seventies, but I think coming out and working with Quincy, um, you know, it was the right people to, to be um, put together in, in that context. Then, I want to ask you a, a question about a, a sort of half formulated question about Michael Jackson's aesthetic qualities. Something that I was thinking about, you know, one of the things that you that you often hear about Michael Jackson's dancing is people will often tell you, oh, you know, he wasn't the first one to do the moonwalk. He, he learned it from uh, B-Boys in New York or you hear, you know, well, many of his many of his moves he cribbed from um, James Brown, both of which are true. Right. Um but there's a, there's a new, one of the things as I was spent the last 24 hours obsessively watching Michael Jackson videos on YouTube that struck me was the balance that he was able to strike or the mix that he was balance makes it seem too oppositional. Um, but the, the mix he was able to strike between the funkiness of James Brown and a kind of, you know, that the other thing you hear about Michael Jackson, which is that Fred Astaire-like grace. And yep. that seems like a really particular, I mean, d- to some extent, it may just be a function of, you know, the shape of his body and the way it moves. But it also feels like an aesthetic choice to me that had my, that had something to do with him, the difference between being a superstar and being the king of pop. Hmm. I mean, I, I definitely think that's an important point you're making because, you know, people often use that as a way to deride whatever artist is getting credit for something, you know, pointing out that technically they weren't the first person to do it. But look, it, nobody's ever the first person to do anything. That's not what matters. 
I mean, what, what made Michael Jackson great is what makes any musician great is the way that they take their influences and synthesize them to, to create something new. You know, just like a hip-hop producer is taking all of his influences, you know, in the form of actually taking the pieces of physical music, I think that's what every great musician has done, is take, it, take the traditions that they're drawing from and find some way to mix it up into a recipe that's new and vibrant. And I think, you know, Michael Jackson was able to do that. And it's, I think the way he did that with Off the Wall is especially intriguing to me because of what you said, because he was working in a form disco that at that point was certainly on its way to being perceived as a joke. And I think, you know, the the first thing that should be pointed out about that is disco kind of got a bum deal at that moment in history because there was a lot of great music that fell under the realm of disco. And, you know, we sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater because there was some garish stuff going on with the culture. And, and, you know, I think... If I could interject possibly also some kind of uh, homophobia and racism mixed in there as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think it was because, because on Off the Wall you had something that was basically working with the disco form, but had, you know, a voice in Michael Jackson that was so powerful and just overwhelming and magical that you know, it made people just relate to it as the great music that it was without thinking about whether it fit under the label disco or not. So, you know, I think that's that's a testament to how powerful he was as a presence on a record, which you can hear, like, listen to, this is not a disco-oriented one, but listen to Can You Feel It with him and his brothers and listen to the difference in the energy and the vibrancy of that song from when his brothers are singing to when his voice comes in. It's just like there's no other word but magic for the energy that he brings to a track when he comes in. And his brothers are good singers, too. Absolutely. <laughs> well, what do you think, Oliver, about about the idea of him making these these new aesthetic choices and, and what choices he was making? You mean in terms of, of the dancing? As a dancer or, or as a vocalist. I mean, I think a lot, of this, a lot of the same things are reflected in his vocals. One of the things that impresses me about... His vocals is the way he mixes a um, a smooth, quiet storm aesthetic. There's a sweetness and a you know a kind of lightness to his voice that nonetheless has a, a surprising amount of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think about the kind of the, his cries and shouts and screams during during his his performances, um, which which really mirrors a lot of the, the kind of kinetic, propulsive physical action that he's doing with dancing. Um, you know, I was rewatching both the, the Motown 25th anniversary clip, which if you've never seen, I mean, you just really have to see him knocking out Billie Jean um, during that. And there are so few artists who really, I think, as performers, and, and I talk, I'm, I'm talking more in a contemporary sense, really figured out how to bring physical movement and dancing into it. And I think the artists that we tend to think of as being really adept at that today, people like Justin Timberlake and Usher, are so clearly following, you know, Michael Jackson's example. Um, but that there's, that there's, it's, it's hard to imagine or, or come up with an example that's not MJ-derived, that, that, that a lot of pop artists just don't really bring in a sense of physicality into how they perform. I went, mm. I saw an Usher concert once, um, and, uh, it was like watching a Michael Jackson tribute act. Huh. He literally had a whole like Michael Jackson number in it. Yeah, it's kind of like how Hollywood movies once they discovered, you know, Hong Kong movie kung fu choreography, like you 
it was just impossible to have a fight scene that wasn't based on that because it just shames everything else you've ever tried to do like that. That's what Michael Jackson did to dancing and live performance, I think, for American pop music. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of artists just couldn't hang. Like they just they just didn't have either the training or the gift to sort of be able to knock out the kind of choreography that that he was capable of. Um, but it just it just adds such an incredible dynamic to sort of just that you know that performance. And so um, you know, I wish more artists would sort of take the time to sort of work it out. It can't just be you know Beyonce in you know <laughs> with. With the with the uh, with the single ladies video, that's like I mean that's one of the very few examples you can think of the last few years that where dancing suddenly becomes a really prominent part of it. What do you think? Um, we've talked so much about Michael the the Michael Jack the ascendant Michael Jackson, um, the period between his um, uh, between his uh, his album Off the Wall and and the huge monstrous impact of Thriller. What do you think was the impact of the Michael Jackson of the late 1980s and the early 1990s as he started to, you know, almost publicly fall apart? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess for me it was sort of an ongoing process of, you know, the five stages of grief, I guess, you know, mostly denial, <laughs> like sort of, <laughs> you know, trying to convince yourself that he was still on his game as each successive record came out, you know, so which, which I have to say Prince fans went through too during that era, by the way, um, <laughs> at least on a musical level, not with his personal life. But I mean, I think it was just, um, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Just sort of hoping against hope that what seemed like was happening wasn't actually happening. I mean, to me, what I saw and what I remember was this contrast between him struggling with with trying to stay relevant at a time when hip hop was yeah. becoming so ascendant. And you know, for me, it was never between Michael Jackson and Prince per se. It was really between kind of the pop music that Michael Jackson represented and sort of rolling with hip hop. And right. I I threw my lot in with hip hop. And so Michael Jackson, especially if you listen to an album like Dangerous, where where, where Teddy Riley is giving him these, I mean, really uh, almost cliche kind of New Jack swing beats. And you think about what else was going on with popping off in 1991 in contrast to that. And it just feels so out of time and out of sync yep. with where pop music should have been heading and where people, you know, who were in the know knew where it was heading, where it was at. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know if that's something that one, one that's a false Jackson with. I mean, he's, doing what he can do to stay relevant. It's just there was such much more interesting, exciting music, at least for me, going on, that Michael Jackson really felt like a relic even as early as the as early 90s. Right, and I think, you know, that's, that's, I think that's exactly what happened to Prince during that era as well, as he had an acute sense of being eclipsed by this tidal wave of hip-hop and no longer being the avant-garde. You know, I think, in a way, Prince and Michael both lost their mojo for the same reason around that time. One of the things that that I remember so specifically around the time that Michael Jackson's public persona began to be uh, subsumed into controversy around his um, alleged pedophilia and, and all these things was this just intense rage that was that felt like it was coming from everywhere towards him. And I remember feeling like that um that the controversies surrounding him the the uh uh the lawsuits are, are around the pederasty and so forth were 
we're almost an ex- just a just a continuation of a flow of anger rather than um, rather than a source. Um, and I, on the other hand, I was 12 at the time, um, and I wonder I wonder how you guys remember that period of his public persona and and how you felt like things went off the rails. Hmm. <laughs> Bubbles, man. I think it was the time the chimp came into play. <laughs> <laughs> man, I you know, it's so hard to know what to say about it. I mean, I mean, I definitely want to say, like, wherever we go with this, I don't want, I definitely don't want to sound like I'm sweeping under the rug the possibility that he may have been abusive to kids. Like, I, I don't feel like any of us can, any of us can know for sure what happened, but there is a distinct possibility that he was caught up in both ends of that cycle of abuse. And, you know, I think we can recognize that he was caught up in that cycle without treating it as if it absolves him of what he did, if he did it. You know, and I, and I think we should be careful not to speak of that as if that's not what really matters right now because, you know, that would be a disrespect to the millions of people who have suffered that sort of abuse. So, I think, you know, I think I just want to get that in the mix. But, um, I mean... It was just excruciating to me to see, you know, as as we started to really see all the turmoil that was going on for him. I mean, I, I couldn't see it as anything but tragic, and you know, feel a you know feel a certain amount of rage for the idea that he might have done some horrible things. But also, you know, it, that was just something that compounded the terrible sense of tragedy as you sort of saw the sort of pain and you know, lack of ability to have a normal life at any point, you know, as we started to sort of see what's been behind the curtain all that time. I mean, I can't remember exactly when this was in terms of year, but I think for me it was a lot of the focus that came about around his plastic surgery and just the kind of physical alterations that he was putting himself through. And, you know, I think for me the, the cautionary point here is, is to what extent is, is any celebrity sort of responsible for their own image creation within the media and how much is that is really the media sort of feeding on whatever they think they can, they can exploit? Um, I don't really think it's an either-or. I think there's sort of complicity in, on both sides with that. So while I think, you know, the celebrity tabloids certainly, um, I mean, ran a number of, of Olympian uh, proportions on, on someone like Michael Jackson, I think he certainly contributed to that and perhaps... Because he was, because I think as, as Jay stated earlier in this conversation, you know, he was someone who really, I think, fed off and needed sort of that kind of public adoration um, for his own sense of, of, of wellness and, and of worth. You know, he, he contributed to that as well. But I think it's really at that point where you start, the, the stories around him start becoming more surreal. Uh, and we were, And this was before the sort of the child abuse stuff had come out, uh, but it was really at the point where it just seemed just bizarre what was going on and, and that to me really signaled that something had shifted yeah and I, you know and i think yeah i don't think you can assign blame on any one player in that whole story i mean i think you know he's certainly he's accountable for the choices he made you know certainly there was a whole lot of exploitative aspects to uh how the media related to him and you know as we as the audience i you know we were also drawn into relating to it in an unhealthy way like we do with so much you know of what the media serves us and, and i think um i mean i feel like you know people talked about michael like you know i've been seeing people list his 
you know, his accusations about Tommy Mottola as one of the signs that he was crazy. But, you know, without I don't know if Tommy Mottola specifically was trying to rip him off, but I don't think it's crazy for Michael Jackson to feel like there were lots of people in the music industry, you know, that wanted to get at him and sort of ex- exploit his frailty in order to get at some of his money. I mean, the music industry's part of this capitalist society. If you're if you're one of those capitalists and you see someone who has an insane amount of money and an incredible amount of frailty, of course a whole bunch of you are going to figure out how to exploit that frailty to get some of his money. So I, I mean, I think, you know, it was just the perfect storm of being someone who's able to uh, create a bubble around yourself and detach from reality, you know, a media system that's going to love to exploit that any way you can, you know, and an audience that, uh, you know, is just going to watch you self-destruct and eat it up because that's how we relate to those things. It seems like the we've already discussed that the media, the media marketplace is such in 2009 that we may never again see the kind of global phenomenon of uh, of a Michael Jackson that we saw in, you know, 1984. Um, but given that fact, what do you think are the what do you think are the sort of ripples of effects of Michael Jackson's musical career on the musical landscape of 2009 and, and beyond? Hmm. <laughs> well, I think you can certainly see his influence in a lot of big contemporary pop artists. I mean, I already mentioned two prior, which was uh, Justin Timberlake, though on his more recent album, I think he's, he's shifted away from that, but also Usher. And I think for, you know, for sort of non-auto-tune R&B artists, <laughs> you know, Jackson is always going to be a template that's going to be in the back of their mind. And whether they follow that template or not, it's sort of an unavoidable, just, it's an unavoidable force and presence that that's out there. Um, I mean, to me, I, I really feel like, especially in this sort of introspective and reflective time on, on Jackson and his legacy and, and, and his music in particular, that um, people are going to re- revisit a lot of the uh, his, of his older stuff and find, I mean, this is an experience I've been having, and it's not like I was ever not aware of that, <laughs> the fact that he made some great music, but realizing how really, really, really great that music was. I mean, if you look at the Jackson 5 catalog, if you look at... Um, uh, Michael's uh, solo catalog in the 70s and the kind of songs and, and arrangements and songwriting that were going into those. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible bounty of songs that I think a lot of people have probably just taken for granted because they figured Michael was always going to be around and that stuff is always going to be there. Um, it's funny because I've been talking with friends of mine who work in, in, in used records and copies of Thriller are now, are, I mean, no pun intended, are selling off the wall. And this is something that you could have found in any thrift store or bargain bin anywhere because there's, you know, 26 million copies of it. But now they're going for actual money. Uh, you know, it's, if, you, if you want to have a good laugh, go to eBay and, uh, and search for uh, Michael Jackson and Thriller and look at, for, look at the prices that some of these people are asking for, copies of, of one of the most common albums <laughs> on the planet. But I, think, but I think there is this hunger. People suddenly really want to go back and listen to it, and I think they're going to find a lot of things they just they sort of took for granted and, and didn't think about the first time. And I think that's a, I think that's a great thing to come out of, of, of the tragedy otherwise, is that this, this rediscovery process of some incredible uh, musical output. Oliver, are there any particular songs that, you, that you've gone back to in the, in the past day or yeah, so? Yeah, I mean, the one that I am have on, on repeat right now is um, We've Got a Good Thing Going, um, which was a song off of, I think, Michael Jackson's Ben album, which was his second solo album. 
um, uh, around 1973-74, and it just has this really, I mean, beautiful, um, pitch-perfect kind of Motown-era production. The songwriting is fantastic, uh, and it has this underlying layer of, of both longing and, and melancholy that I think even as, you know, a 14-, 15-year-old, Michael just knew how to express uh, and capture. In a lot of ways, you have to think, like, why, you know, you know he shouldn't have had to, had to, you know, be put in a position to have to, have to express some, like, really adult kind of feelings. Right. But, um, you know, songs like that, uh, you know, as you were, I think the song that you're going to play on the show, um, Never Can Say Goodbye, uh, I mean, just his ability to emote is was such a gift. Jay, what do you think is uh, Michael Jackson's, uh, I'm hesitant to say Michael Jackson's legacy, but what are the ramifications of Michael Jackson's music in the, in the contemporary music landscape? Um, you know, I think it's impossible to calculate that. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Oliver did a great job of summing up all the influence he's had on today's pop stars, and I think that's only going to grow from now on because, uh, you know, I think a lot of us, who had been distracted by the person he became are going to rediscover his music now. And more importantly than that, I think anyone who's discovering Michael Jackson for the first time from now on is probably going to do it through his music. You know, and, uh, you know, they're, they're going to discover this amazing music, some of the most powerful, timeless pop music that's ever been invented. And they're going to come to us with disbelief and say, so wait, people were distracted from this music because of whatever eccentricities this dude had as a person. Are you kidding me? What, what, let's, forget, let's not even talk about this. Put that song back on. Like that's, I mean, I think, you know, whatever impact he's had now, I think 20 years from now, 50 years from now, you'll see a renaissance of him having an impact on future generations, you know, and you'll be able to have a pure relationship with that music that we, you know, sadly, because of his troubles, we're not able to have. Are there any songs that, that you've gone back to um, in the last day or so? I mean, there isn't anyone. There are so, you know, luckily he hasn't been one of those who shuts everything down on YouTube. So there's a tremendous wealth of obscure tracks and live footage on there that you can sort through. There's a great, there's an, I hope I'm not getting things shut, shut down by mentioning this. <laughs> there's an entire concert from Paris in 1972 that you can find just incredible performance. And, you know, and just, you know, I think people think of him sometimes as being someone who sort of created pop candy, but there is like some rich, dense funk and soul that you can find in there. Like just, you know, and just an, an amazing, it's just an amazing wealth of stuff that he put out there you could spend years studying. 
Well, guys, thank, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Sandy Young America. It was so great to have you back. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Jay Smooth uh, is online at theilldoctrine.com. You can find Oliver Wang's great soul music blog, Soul Sides, at soul-sides.com. Thanks again, guys. All right. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our show basically wasn't edited this week, but what editing there was was done by me. Production of The Sound of Young America, underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Let's let Michael Jackson, one of the greatest to ever do it, sing some.